episode 18. Episode 18, coming to the end of season one. Not far off now. Yeah. We're doing this like in seasons. Season. Is that what we call it? Season one? Seasons, yeah. Series might be a stretch, would it? <laughs> a series would be the podcast in and of itself, wouldn't it? I mean, you do a series of seasons. That's how they break down TV shows, right? Like a series is the, the actual show and the series might have three seasons. Oh, season one. <laughs> is it not series one, series two? No, no, no. Season one, season two. Of the series. Yeah. Jesus, mind blowing there, huh? I think <laughs> I actually knew that. It was just... <laughs> just I did, yeah. I definitely knew that. I, I, was, I definitely knew that. But yeah, so we're just going to, like we are saying, probably land around the 20 at the end of August, which will be the date that I should have been presenting at the World Master Championship. And just to probably admit defeat, I don't like saying defeat, but in a defeat in, in, in a, a very specific sense. And it being outside of our control is the uh, Canada and America have extended the ban on non-essential travel between the countries through to August 21st. The IBJJF tournament was supposed to be on, I think, 26th or 27th. So even if that ban stops, then I can't see a situation where the 14-day quarantine uh, is not extended beyond that ban date. Like, I, I, I feel like I'm the only one in the world that was kind of clinging on to some hope there. Everything, yeah, I don't think even in 2020 that's going to happen. So I think... Uh, I admit defeat that the championship won't be on. I actually emailed the IBJJF during the week as well to see what the latest is and they just gave the spiel. We are continuing to monitor the situation. We'll be working with local governments and all that kind of thing. So, yeah, I think that's a defeat admitted on that one. But that's not to say that the podcast was in vain or our efforts in vain. So we're not going to take it like that are we we're gonna round it out with we'll probably revisit the mission statement in in this episode uh, amongst a few other things and and we'll try and close out with some positivity regardless yeah yeah i know it's uh it's it's onwards and upwards for sure it's all good well we thought in this episode there was one question that was i think useful but we didn't get around to last time so Maybe address that, and then we're thinking, yeah, do a quick review of kind of what we set out to do and talk a little bit about the plan for the next couple of episodes. We're going to keep this one relatively short. I mean, it might end up the length of a normal episode, but cool. a few kind of bits of housekeeping, and hopefully we can kind of keep it interesting too. Sweet. So what was his question? So this came from Rory on Twitter, and... He asked us, he said, on the last episode, you mentioned momentum. Maybe you could go deeper into that. Within a habit or behavior change element, it's positive, negative dimensions. And maybe what it shares differs with upward, downward spirals. So, so the main difference for me when I think about the momentum of a habit versus the upward spiral, and the two could be, in a sense, Synonymous, right? As I've said numerous times, these are just useful heuristics for thinking about complex systems. 
But the main difference for me is that when I think about the momentum of a habit as such, I'm really thinking about a singular habit, right? A kind of singular practice or a singular behavior as opposed to in the upward spiral, you think about a behavioral ecology, right? So when we talked about upward or downward spirals, we were talking about how you have these cascading effects where one activity can bring about a different kind of frame. And within that frame, you can just be disposed to activities that are better for you. And then you enact them and it brings about a different frame and so on and so forth. The inverse then there being the downward spiral where you maybe do one thing and it leads to a kind of less optimal state and from that optimal state you're motivated to act in ways that are less optimal and that brings about a less optimal state and so on so that was the general logic of the upward spiral now i think maybe this question comes from rory um, because he asks us to speak about the positive or negative dimensions is it because the normal notion of a a downward spiral, I guess, comes from addiction, right? And when we think about the negative dimensions of the kind of addictive behavior, we think about the same behavior being repeated over and over again, and that actually being the downward spiral. But I obviously don't know if that's what Rory meant, um, but there seems to be a logic there. But but my 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 thinking in response to that would be that... Well, the addictive behavior is consistent, right? And it's consistently enacting the same pattern, but it's also bringing about progressively worse states, which also include the addictive behavior. So the downward spiral is still a kind of cascading effect on the broader ecology of patterns of behavior and and states of being, I guess. Uh, so, So what I would say is, when I'm thinking about the momentum of a habit, I mean, in a fairly specific sense. So I was referring to, in that episode, uh, we were talking about the Grona Yogi situation. Shoutouts to episode eight, Murmuration, where Upward Spirals was covered. Do you remember what episode he's talking about here where we talked about momentum? It's probably not that long ago. It was. It was. No. I think it was in reference to grown yogi. I mean, because I was saying, I had kind of dropped back in terms of the intensity of the practice during the uh, COVID situation. Yeah. Okay. And but I was saying I was I was kind of keeping some momentum in the practice by doing it at a kind of lesser rate or lesser intensity. And I'm still doing the gr- so it's like a, I imagine like a spinning top. You know, it's starting, you know, slowing down, it's starting to wobble, and you just give it a little spin, keep the momentum going before it falls over. Yeah, yeah. I so I have an analogy that I think is use, useful or a metaphor. I'm really what what I was talking about in terms of momentum is like once it's going, it's easier to keep alive than it is to bring back to life, and there's probably still value in a reduced habit, just the structure it brings to your day, if that's something you value. I I certainly find that, right? Even if my meditation habit is not full steam ahead, 
if I have to strip it back, rather than doing nothing at all, doing the five minutes is still valuable. Whether or not I'm, you know, uh, getting closer to any sort of real results, having the structure is somehow useful. Oh, that's that's a hundred percent. I find the same. You know, like, you know, if you if you plan on doing something exercise wise every day, and then there's a day that you can't, yeah, or your 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 window is narrowed. Even if you, you know, get out and just do two hundred meter sprints, right. Versus, you know, you might normally do a 5K run. It's, I don't know, well, you could speak to that more, but for me, it's like, if I miss that, I really, and maybe it's like, maybe it's twofold. One is like, I, I kind of, maybe I beat myself up a little bit about it. Mm. Uh, and secondly, you know, yeah, in the, missing the ritual the next day, it's a harder ask to, to, to bring it around again. Yeah. Uh, and that's what I mean by momentum. That's exactly what I mean by it. Uh, there's to get a little bit technical. There's so we we talk about habits in the language of autonomy as a kind of specific language, but part of the definition of something being autonomous in the in the sense that it's intended is that it's uh, precarious, which is say uh, absent the right conditions, it will it will dissipate in that sense. It will dissolve or it'll disappear. So part of those conditions are the rate of repetition, right? And say so obviously the availability of certain material resources, the availability of certain structures in the environment, the availability of time and so on. But, you know, any of those conditions can be disturbed and maybe the habit can't be repeated. But you can... My, my feeling is, or, you know, if it's to theorize around this is that even a minimal flow of of those kind of conditions through the ecology right maintains the channel for for the kind of habit to stay open in a sense right because there's a yeah. sense of which we talk about um also this notion of homeoresis right so it's like what has been maintained and it's these these kinds of i conceive them as as flows flows of processes um it's almost a, a kind of a Taoist notion, right? You, you have this idea of these this set of activities taking on this kind of uh, integrated flow together, and there's a sense in which what you're doing when you repeat or reproduce or reinforce the habit is um, maintaining that that flow, right? That that homeoretic state. <clears throat> well, it's not a state; it's such that homeoretic relation. Anyway, so the the, the metaphor I want to use is. Um, is from <laughs> sourdough bread making, right? And we're, we're all maybe a bit familiar, more familiar with this since the lockdown. I know a lot of people were making their sourdough. But when you're making sourdough, you first have to make a starter, right? Uh, you have to feed. Do you, do you know the crack with sourdough bread? No, because I've seen everyone trying to make it in the last few months and everyone's heart is generally broken. So I've kind of like <laughs> stayed away from it. Should I get on board? Well, it's delicious bread. And yeah, but like it's, is, it's is, 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 the, is the reward worth the effort or is it better to go to the bakery? We, I was in, I ended up in a sourdough group and everything on WhatsApp <laughs> and uh, Dad actually got some kick out of that. When he heard that, he thought uh, it was all over. <laughs> thought it was after 
He's like, a sourdough group. Huh? <laughs> he thought it was an old one. Like, thought that's the kind of thing an old one would be in. I'm sure he's probably not wrong. But um, the part of the challenge, one of the, mo- the most difficult things is is getting the starter going. Right? Like it's, oh, is it like a culture or something, is it? I don't, yeah, yeah, what, yeah. What's, how, how do you make sourdough bread? So a lesson in sourdough, you get, it's very simple. You have water and you have flour and you leave it exposed to the air. And in the air, there's yeast cultures or, you know, microbacteria. Yeah, yeah. And they'll eventually land on your uh, flour and um, they start to consume the flour. But it takes a while, right, to get them kind of to the point where there's enough eating them that they're consuming the flour at the rate that you need them to. So what they're eventually doing is when they consume the flour, they produce gas, air, I guess, um, of some sort, it's probably not air, but and and that that raises the flour, right? So rather than using a, re, a, a kind of artificial yeast to raise the dough, you're using this culture, right? So they're eating the sugars in the flour, processing that, giving off this gas, and that gas expands the thing. So your starter is effectively a kind of a feed that you add to your dough every time you make it. But the starter can, you do it kind of separately, right? So you just get your bit of, bit of uh, flour, your bit of water, put it in a jar, put a loose cover on it, leave it out and uh, start to feed that every couple of days, right? So you're taking out half of it, putting back in a bit of flour, a bit of water, taking out half of it, flour, water, taking out half of it. That goes on for about, Depends on temperature. Everything's very specific with temperatures and all that, and that's the, that's the real challenge. But within about ten days, all going well, it'll you'll come down one day and it'll just be overflown, and you're like, okay, now my my sourdough starters is ready. So my analogy here is right. Like once you get the sourdough starter going, it's actually easy to keep going, right? So you just take out whatever you're using for the bread, you just throw in a tiny bit, tiny bit of water, give it enough to feed again. Yeah. And you do that every day, right? And you can even put it in the fridge, right? So you can take your sourdough and you can slow down the process by putting it in the fridge. And you can even put it in the freezer if you really want to prolong it. And if you take it out of the fridge, um, it's still been taken over. So it just takes, you know, another spoon or whatever, throw it in, and then your starter's ready to go. So the analogy here with the momentum is that, like we've talked about the propagation phase, right, where you need a very specific set of conditions. You need to be kind of careful, right, because you have the seed and the seed is fragile. And, you know, the idea with momentum in the habit is a bit like, it's a bit like the, the sourdough, right? It's a bit like the starter. Once you have it kind of going, a little feed is all you need to keep it going. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I hear you. And yeah, yeah I mean, they f- effectively are living entities, right? You have this thing which requires these particular conditions in order to maintain itself. So the kind of momentum of dropping back but keeping it alive is a bit like, you know, keeping the sourdough starter alive so when that you do need it to actually uh, plant out again when the, um, when the habit 
when you have the the possibility to you know give it its proper expression well you already have that kind of starter there right you already have a lot of the conditions in place and the kind of flow right that we were talking about the homeoretic flow it doesn't need to be re-established to stuff as such right yeah. the autonomy is already there it just needs to kind of be expanded and there's a sense in which i suppose we all have that feeling of well, it's probably easier just to expand the thing than to to yeah. build the thing again from nothing yeah that's why I, like yeah i suppose you know it's good to have a, a principled approach when you're going like training and stuff and and it could be that you you know you, your your goal is to move every day like we talked about before because if you you can you should be able to do that you know maybe or at least you know if you call it six days a week there's a day we don't know, but whatever if you, but let's just say seven if you say move every day and then you know four of those days might be heavy workouts or runs or jogs or jujitsu training or whatever and the others might be just something lesser going for a walk mm. what have you um, but I suppose the decision making process is to 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 do to move you know whether it's a, a 10k a jog or a 100 meter sprint there's probably similar decision-making process that are going on. And that's probably to the point about the momentum. Is it like you're still making, you know, you're still the, the, the brain, the, the neurology, I'm sure is very similar. You, you know, you know better than I would, but uh, the, the neurological uh, efforts, whether the extent of the, the exercise in this instance, um, is this or not it, it, the same pathways have been opened up like you said the flow yeah i'm not uh, qualified to speak about brains unfortunately but um that certainly seems to fit with the kind of logic of what we're saying here uh, yeah i think it's a straightforward enough point point right it's it's a bit like you have your starter uh, you can feed it every day and that's going at full strength you can put it in the fridge that preserves it slows it down but it keeps it alive and what we're doing here when we kind of strip back the habit but maintain it in its kind of minimal form it's a bit like putting it in the fridge right we're kind of preserving it so that uh, it keeps it alive but it, it doesn't require the same amount of resources yeah well that's like i suppose when you talk about jujitsu it's like even if you have a bad day of jujitsu on the mats even if you have a day where you don't absorb anything and you just get crushed the whole time you've at least maintained the habit of going to jujitsu, you know, and you've, you're, you know, that's. Yeah. 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 There's a, there's a danger to here too. When I think about it, right. It's like, you can definitely fall into this momentum. Uh, it's probably a different issue. I haven't really thought through it, but you know, where you're OCD just job, like, no, I mean, where you're just showing up and, um, you're 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 just relying on the bit of momentum that exists right and you're no longer mm. pushing a boundary or you're no longer trying to refine your game or whatever it is in jiu-jitsu anyway that's a different issue cool so what did we set out to do once upon a time so my mission was to present at the World Master Jiu-Jitsu Championship as well prepared as I could be in order to give myself the best chance of winning the tournament in my specific age, weight, and belt. The outcome of the training I would be undertaking that puts me in this position 
is to be very confident in my game from all positions, being so confident in that I can teach it to the extent that I'm qualified to do so, and I'm able to impose it on my opponents, including higher belts on occasion, in most roles. At every training session, I'm going to work on some element of my game that needs improving. I will work on getting each element to a point where I can impose it on my opponents, ideally resulting in me being able to impose my game on my opponents reliably as we progress through this, sometimes even on higher belts. I know if I do this consistently and make it a habit, it will significantly significantly contribute to my performance in the competition. So I actually think I understand that better now than I did at the time, but I don't think I've got to that point. Now, even if I'd been rolling for the last three months, but I do think there's something in that. I almost feel like that is a two-year plan. I thought I could probably expedite it quicker. But I don't think I would have been hitting the mats at the competition having got to a point with that. I think I'm only still now understanding the type of game that I want to to employ over the next couple of years or year, you know what I mean? Year and a half. So maybe it was ambitious, but... Do you think even if you'd time on the mats that it would have been as ambitious? I mean... Uh, I think so. I think it's... I think it'd be a bit kind of bullish for me to say, oh yeah, I had a bit on the mats the last four months that I would have achieved it. Uh, I think I definitely would have progressed it more because I'm now really deep on focused on making the arm triangles, which I have said for quite a while, but I've watched more DVDs over the break. I watched Lachlan Giles one. So I've Giles one done, Ryan Hall's one done, and I have John Danaher's started. So with all of them, and I was trying to know, like I just back rolling there this week. So try to, uh, trying to get into the arm triangle situations, you know, just searching them out and, that kind of stuff. So that's going to be my big focus for the next while. Maybe I would have been a bit further on. Maybe I would have been catching a lot more Darcy's, you know, uh, Anacondas, maybe some guillotines, but I'm certainly not there now. Um, but I think our conversations over this podcast and talking about the game and then, you know, concepts first game and then doubling down in the details of the game is going to stand to me. And I think likewise for you, the way you've been talking for the next, the next little while. Maybe yeah, we're finally sure. understanding what it takes to get us on the road towards Purple Belt without, you know, setting out to do that. This is probably realization lots of Purple Belts have, have come by um, on their road, yeah. you know. Yeah, 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 definitely. And and I'd, I'd imagine too, a lot of people get to Purple Belt just by time in the mats, right? But they haven't thought through that. So... I think over the longer term, it will stand to us. Yeah. I've definitely noticed coming back the sense of having a much more integrated game, but I mean, <laughs> it still takes a lot of work, right? I mean, blue belts of my own go are, are lesser. I actually feel very, very comfortable with it. Um, and relaxed shout when out, I'm rolling. Shout out to say the blue belts if you're listening. Yeah, but not that I'm winning or, you know, not that I'm not getting submitted from time to time or whatever, but I feel very relaxed when I'm rolling with them as far as I know where I want to end up and I know what I'm working towards regardless of where I am. 
And that's only came about from having a clear sense of what my game is. Yeah. And I know it frustrates people as well when I'm rolling with them. And I was kind of thinking recently, like, you know, people are copping on, obviously, to what I'm trying to do. So what's your game now? You're, you, right, you start standing. Just give me a, a typical role. What are you looking for? Are you if looking start, to, you're start start standing, standing. You slap hands. Are you looking for a takedown? Are you pulling guard? Or are you defending the same? If I'm feeling confident, I'll try um, pull into half guard with like two hands on the lapel. So just drag or, down into half guard. Yeah, or I'll go for a single leg, a kind of Bernardo style single leg, which is a kind of scrappy single leg. And then from there, you're trying to get to the over under game. Well, if you're if you landed down in bottom half guard, you're not playing an over under game. What are you doing there? In a half guard game, getting to the um, trying to get the 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 uh, underhook on the on the leg and come up to the side and. Just kind of bully them over. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so Bernardo does a lot of like feeding the lapel through the through the legs and then using it to control the single. Yeah. And uh, I love that. It's really it's really annoying for your opponent. There's kind of good. There's really good control, right? Because you end up having like diagonal control from the far shoulder to the near leg. So you're basically controlling their whole body just with that lapel. And for the, so there, yeah, you bully him over and then you're playing an over-unders game to pass and then you get into pass, you're playing a heavy side control game, looking for Kimuras. That's kind of your style. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm kind of sometimes messing around with looking for Kimuras from everywhere now as well and getting to the back. I'm kind of a bit happier getting to the back. I'm not good at finishing from the back, but I'm good at kind of getting to the back or getting better at getting to the back. And controlling things there for for a while, I'm I'm definitely not good at finishing. I can get a, yeah. get the odd um, bow and arrow. I like the bow and arrow from there in the gi. Yeah. But uh, yeah, just I think those three things, right? The kimura, the over under, or the stack pass, and the uh, half or deep half. Mm. Like the thing with the half and the deep half is. You can just you end up there so often anyway. It's easy enough to get someone's leg, and then once you're tucked in under somebody, they're not really worried about you. But there's a couple of really nice sweeps from there, and you kind of catch people real off guard, and you just come into side control quite easily. Yeah, like defending like people. There's not a, a massive amount of deep half players in my experience. So mm. you know when you come across a good deep half player, it's it's difficult to deal with. Mm. Yeah, yeah. So my, my game is yeah probably the same idea. Probably trying to pick pick a single leg if I can. Depending on where I land, I'll either be like knee cut pass or toriando pass if I'm kind of passing from the outside, or if I end up kind of like on my knees, I'll kind of go over under, and then get get side on, and then I'm looking for my arm triangles and it's usually the kind of katakatami head and arm on, on the far side so go knee and belly and across but depending on, on, on the opponent if they're shooting on me I'm, I'm not good at defending takedowns yet but if I if I can push the head down and then start playing that kind of front headlock game and that's perfect for 
for like anacondas, mm. you know, I suppose almost like inverted darsis. Again, none of these of which I'm good at, but they're all starting to kind of make sense. Guillotines, which I, it's probably its own kind of six months journey or longer. Uh, but there's so many, like head and arm triangles are everywhere. Once you, Yeah, that would be a good, a good one to get into my game too, the like attacking the neck from, from that position, like when people end up in turtle kind of thing. Oh yeah, this, kind of yeah. Face head on turtle. Yeah, it's, it's perfect. It's Peruvian yeah. as well, but like Peruvian is probably not the best move to be relying on because if you don't pull it off, you're a bit like... Uh, you know, exposed. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Anyways, uh, yeah. So look at it. Yeah, we. That's probably just understanding. All that's probably only come about because of what we've been doing here and through obviously working with co- our coaches and you know continue time on the mats. So it's good stuff to be. Um, what's yeah? Mean? If it it feels like last time we were using that analogy of the conversational, right? And it feels like we're getting to that point. You know. Mm. Mm. or you're you is a bit of a style of emerging you kind of have like i definitely feel it where like things things stand out from the background if they're relevant to my game and i i remember them way easier yeah. you know yeah um because you have that context and they're just kind of working themselves into a into an existing um frame or whatever so with this in mind then, how do we want to close out these last two episodes? I think there's a, I think what we should do is like, you, you know, talk about the stuff we've just been talking about and how we're going to use what we've learned and what we've talked about and yeah. to, to progress our jujitsu podcast or no podcast. And just some of the things we've learned and the principles, the fundamentals, the details and uh, go forward yeah, so one thing we're saying, uh, I don't know if listeners will remember, but we did, um, we used a piece of software early in Eric's design process or kind of distillation process where we're trying to say, what is the thing that we should be kind of working on? And obviously the game came forth as kind of very obvious first domino. And uh, we were saying that we have this sense of like, sequencing in terms of getting your principles right, your fundamentals, basic positions and so on, getting your game and then refining the details of your game as you go. But we also had a sense of not quite knowing how to approach the kind of integrating of developing your appreciation of the principles alongside the development of your game. So we were thinking we might return to that bit of software and do a kind of mapping and maybe we can upload it for people because i think once it's done it's done and it's probably the same for everyone so that might be a little bit of help yeah. something helpful and that can help us structure how we're going to approach the next two episodes too right because we're probably on the basis that say okay if the principles are really important well how do we learn the principles alongside our game yeah yeah and one thing that's important there i see it in 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 or coaching sessions, right? Like when you're going to jujitsu, and I think this is probably true anywhere. Like if if you have a set of a principle that you're working on, it doesn't really matter the technique that's been drilled or shown. Yeah. Um, you can always filter it through the principle that you're working on, and therefore kind of 
make the best of your time on the mats, even if it's not relevant to your game. As I find sometimes, you know, if something's not relevant, you zone out a bit and, you know. But you could probably have principles and sub-principles in that sense. Like your principles could be like, you know, am I staying in base? Is my posture always good? Uh, is my structure always good? You know, my alignment. But you could also have other things like, you know, and never let my guard get past. You know, these are m- something that sits in between techniques and, yeah. and you know, real principles. You know, never let, never let my guard get past, you know, stay on top for the whole time. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. That kind of stuff. Probably and good they, to, they will last, they will, no matter what technique you're working at your specific session, those things will kind of, well, you know, should generally hold true. Yeah. They're like, um, not exactly like the half rules we talked about, but maybe not entirely dissimilar either. Yeah. So, so we do this uh, session ourselves we, uh, between now and then, and then just uh, catch up again and just go through it next time. So yeah, we'll do that, and then we'll come back and um, report on it, and then talk about the design as to how we're going to implement it. So we'll have so we we'll leave this uh, podcast season with a design on how we're going to continue our jujitsu game beyond the, the final podcast of this season. Yeah, and me and Eric have been talking a little bit about, you know, how does this podcast extend beyond season one? And um, we've had some ideas, but we're also kind of interested to hear feedback. I think we mentioned this before, you know, if, if if people have um, something they'd like to hear us do or kind of a tread or something they'd like to hear us tease out a bit more. but. We were kind of saying it's it's been leaning jiu-jitsu, <laughs> if you haven't noticed. And I think um, for both of us, we have the kind of recognition that maybe it's it's better for both of us just to kind of lean, lean even harder that direction. So we're going to use jiu-jitsu. It's going to be a jiu-jitsu podcast first and foremost. <laughs> <laughs> right, but... <laughs> We want to. Yeah, we want to address eighteen episodes to. to I think uh, to admit it to ourselves. <laughs> we we want to address an aspect of jujitsu that we feel is maybe a little bit overlooked, and you know, we. We'll, I think we'll get into the details on on all of this stuff in the podcast and make it a bit more of a kind of wholehearted inquiry. But the aspect is the more philosophical component right i'm about to hopefully get my phd in philosophy so i um have some credentials here um, you'll be a got, doctor in, in season two so I'll, be, I'll, be, I'll have my black belt if you will and uh that doesn't mean that i'll be all that qualified in the exact philosophical approaches that we'll be looking at but we're thinking it um provides a good opportunity to actually explore through the the lens of jiu-jitsu the philosophy of martial arts but also a kind of broader selection of philosophies and kind of philosophies for living as such and looking at jiu-jitsu as a as a, as a practice within which those kinds of things can be developed right because i think both of us have the sense that 
there's a lot more going on in jujitsu than 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 we actually reflect on a lot of the time, right? We're just we just focus on the t- technique, but you're kind of learning all this other stuff. And what we're thinking is that you know we we can bring forth a language with which to clarify aspects of jujitsu that are present and valuable, but maybe sometimes just don't get the kind of names. Mm. I think as part of that, one thing we're going to focus on too a lot is just learning. Like, how do you learn better? Because it's really a kind of central skill. And regardless of the domain within which you want to act in life, it's it's a kind of, um, it's always going to be relevant, right? So, yeah. Uh, cool. So are you going to say, are you going to, with all that in mind, are you going to take back your dismissive comments on Zen? I shout out to Rory on that one. Um, Rory called us out for uh, being a bit, a bit abrupt in our uh, dismissal of the whole of Zen. <laughs> but, so I think may, maybe we'll dedicate our first episode or our first exploration to looking at some of the principles there and asking nice. if they do show up in jujitsu and in what way. And if if nothing else, we'll walk away with a more robust appreciation yeah. for. For Zen, Eric's yeah. been doing a bit of reading on Zen, so I mean, yeah, that's the Zen mind. Beginner's mind is great. It's read a little chapter every morning, kind of sets you up for the day. But I, I do see the benefits in, in how it talks about you know practice and to talk about zazen and and the, the, the just having their practice, their daily practice of sitting, you know, or bowing, just being, and. I do see the benefits in that. And I imagine it could translate into jiu-jitsu too, and it probably is translating into jiu-jitsu and probably to some of the points we made before about momentum or ritualistic type things, you know, whether that's not as spiritual, you know, maybe turning up to the mats and getting the mats, but maybe there is a relationship, you know, between zazen and, and sitting on a, on a jiu-jitsu mat but that's something we could probably explore. And maybe yeah, it's, yeah. that's it. Maybe we've actually done it. Maybe by me saying that, we might have Rory even more uh, <laughs> pissed off. <laughs> but that's my, uh, my two cents when I've read three quarters of Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind. Yeah. Shout outs, you know, whether you're that way inclined or not, uh, it's definitely worth the read. Yeah, I think like when we're coming back to this, what we're going to do is say, pick a pick a topic or pick a philosophical approach or pick something within jiu-jitsu specifically and probably spend a bit of time in it so we're going into a bit of depth on uh whatever it is that we're talking about and cool. you know really making it something that's valuable for the listeners that they can kind of walk away with whether it's advice or insight or um, something they can really apply to their to their uh, practice but i think ebd is going to be there in the background as a kind of organizer frame too to help us think about the implementation all this stuff yeah and i think it's going to be interesting for us to look because the ebd sits within you know last time we talked about ecolog- ecological psychology and constraint-led approaches to coaching and stuff and we answered william's question and uh 
there's a lot of work that goes on within those spheres, none of which I've ever seen applied to uh, martial arts or at least definitely not Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. Not that I've been actively searching. Someone else can call us out on that. But I think there's probably a very interesting existing vocabulary there that allows us to think about the uh, training situation of Jiu-Jitsu more broadly, right? So Bernanke has the systems approach that applies to the, the body in a sense. But I know a lot of people have been thinking about like coaching approaches and, you know, learning approaches from systems understandings. And um, there's probably an interesting vocabulary there that we can also kind of carry into jujitsu. Yeah. So I think, you know, what we want to do is, is really be of service in a sense. Obviously we satisfy our own curiosities, but I think also, you know, hopefully, contributing to the jiu-jitsu community in a way that's of some value yeah excellent right we'll leave it there we'll catch up next time peace Oops.